our words and our whole selves to others in ways that bring about your flourishing in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Words create worlds. Maybe you've heard that statement made before, but it's, it's really true. Our words, our language as human beings create realities. I mean, isn't that amazing? I'm always amazed at how words have a way of sticking to you, kind of like sticking in your mind, sticking in your body. Um, I was going to start this morning with an exercise of reflection to just demonstrate this and try to take you back to like middle school and remember uh, something traumatic or something awesome that happened to you, but I don't want to re-traumatize all of us. Uh, middle school was just a terrible season, uh, at least for me. Um, but it, it, I, I bet that if, if you were to stop and pause, maybe this is a good reflection exercise this week, you could remember a time when someone's words brought harm to your life. Someone's words brought healing to your life. The right word at the right time really lifted you up. Or maybe you could think about a time when your own words brought harm or healing into someone else's life. And the thing about words is they're not just like abstract uh, things that float around in space. They're actually, they have like a spiritual kind of import to them, right? Like they, they tend to come inside of us and stick to us. Like if any, I, I think about like the last couple weeks, if you've been criticized for something, it's not just like it comes in your ear and you're like, oh, I'm being criticized and it goes back out. It like sticks to you and almost becomes uh, like a record th- that plays uh, over and over and over again in the soundtrack of your mind and heart. And it has this ability just to, just to land on you and almost settle on you like just like a thick fog. Um, we internalize words. When we internalize words over long periods of time, they accumulate. They have this cumulative effect, the compounding effect if you're in finance. This is like compound interest kind of dynamics with words. And they actually become like scripts or narratives that drive the way that we live. I mean, think about how, how, how a word or a phrase or, or words or phrases that were said to you as a child become like something as an adult that you're trying to overcome. You're like, I, I, I want to prove you wrong, and I'm going to live my life to prove you wrong. I, I think about, um, I just finished Will Smith's uh, biography. It was really fascinating, his autobiography. And he talks about the power of words in his own life. He had a grandmother who was a Christian, and she was always speaking words of blessing over him. And he's like, she just had this way that, like, she communicated. And when she communicated, like, God was speaking to me. And I've always tried to live up to her vision for my life of, like, blessing and then from his father, he received, like, lots of hard and sometimes even violent words and actions. And, and he's always kind of lit. He said, I've always felt like a coward. And I've spent my entire life trying to prove to everyone. Like, all of my acting, all of my success was an attempt to essentially disprove the fact that I'm not a coward. Fascinating, right? Like, you could think about that in your own life. The older that I get, the more I realize the weight of my words, right? Like, uh, I am a pastor so I'm, like, paid to speak, um, which is a very terrifying thing to think about. Uh, James 3 says that not many of you should strive to be teachers because you're going to be held accountable for every word that you speak. Makes me want to do, like, five-minute sermons uh, going forward as I really begin to think about it. Uh, but more than that, I think about more close to home. Like, I'm a, I'm a husband, and I think about how many words I've spoken this week or not spoken to my wife. Have those been words of blessing and encouragement or not? Uh, I think about being a parent. How many words. My parents go to this church, which is always kind of awkward. They're not here today. I'm thankful. But like, think about how many words <laughs> that were spoken or not spoken. Uh, they'll be watching this on YouTube tomorrow, so I got to be careful. But how many words are spoken that just stick in you? And I think about 
like, you know, the therapy that I've paid lots of, you know, money for over the years, not all related to them, but just like the words that have been spoken over me. And I think now I have that power with my own children. I have four kids. Every week I'm using words. And it's terrifying to think about how am I using those words and what, like, they're going to be in therapy one day because of something I've said to them probably. Um, that's, a, that's a weighty responsibility. Um, I mean, like, this, this idea that words create worlds is not a modern idea. This is actually just our society catching up to the Bible, to ancient wisdom. Proverbs 18.21, written by King Solomon thousands of years ago, says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We tell our kids all the time when they're engaged in, like, you know, word battles with each other, your words are like a weapon. You can either use those to, like, slice and dice and cut and harm, or you can use those to heal. Like, think about that. That's the power of your words. Those who love it will eat its fruit. If you use your words in ways that are life-giving and wise and compassionate, you will eat the fruit of that. If not, you will be eating lots of bitter fruit. Kind of... helps me understand a little bit. Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher, said a while ago, when we think about words and how they're used in our society and some of the ills and the, um, the, the division that we're experiencing, Blaise Pascal said this, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. Think about how some of your greatest regrets could have been avoided if you'd just gone to your room and been quiet. I feel like we should just send all of our politicians to their rooms to be quiet for a couple of years and like things might get a little bit better in our country. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today is uh, as we continue our series on simplicity and generosity, um, we want to look at something that might seem strange. We tend to think of simplicity and generosity just as about money. But as we've said over the last couple of weeks, it really, uh, simplicity is both inward and outward. We talked about uh, this temptation towards more uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how that comes. Last week, Steve did a great job talking about simplicity of heart, how that arises and really begins. The seeds of that simplicity or lack of simplicity really start inwardly and begin to move outward. And this week's kind of the bridge. So we're going to look at simplicity of apparel and our stuff next week. Uh, and then we're going to finish with uh, a word on generosity. Uh, and this week is kind of the bridge between the inward and the outward, between what's inside and then what comes out in our speech and our words. And I'm aware of the irony that I'm speaking to you right now with lots of words. So I'm going to try to make this as simple and as helpful as possible. And so I want to take us back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, the context of Matthew 5 is this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, probably the most well-known, well-loved, least understood uh, passage of Scripture, chapters 5 to chapter 7. It's essentially Jesus' kingdom manifesto. He's saying this is what... God is like. This is what it's like to live as his disciple. If you want to cut through all of the noise, cut through all of the cultural baggage, and you want to get back to the essence of what Jesus was about, what he was calling his disciples into when he says, follow me, that is the Sermon on the Mount. And and in this section here, um, he's going through and he's contrasting um, what he calls the the righteousness of the Pharisees. So he starts out here in verse 33. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors. And then in verse 34, but I tell you. So he's contrasting the Pharisees who were viewed as kind of the pinnacle of the religious society, but were hypocrites, Jesus says, throughout the Gospels. Um, Their inside didn't match their outside. And so they were always focusing on the externals of holiness, but not the heart really behind that. And they were always missing it. So he's contrasting 
He says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, your righteousness, if you're going to do it just on performance and kind of a merit-based approach, your righteousness will have to be better than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And of course, the, the point is, that's impossible, right? Righteousness comes from God. It's a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's something that God gives to us. And as God gives us his righteousness, we're then able to live out in our relationships the righteousness, and the word can also be translated justice, of God. And that's really what chapter 5 is all about, and 6 is about our relationships. How do we relate to each other? So he talks about anger, which is kind of, if you think about it, the well of a lot of our challenges is anger and wrath. He talks about how murder begins in the heart. He talks about how adultery begins in the heart. And then, uh, and then he goes on to talk here about the importance of truthfulness. And so this passage, um, he says, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. That's the old way of thinking about it. Jewish society was, was really uh, centered around uh, making and keeping oaths and vows. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see oaths and vows being made all the time. And this passage uh, is referencing kind of Jewish case law that grew up around the original Ten Commandments, and one commandment in particular says, thou shalt not lie, or you shouldn't lie, right? Don't lie, don't bear false witness. And so the question is, what does it mean to tell a lie? And how do we know if somebody's lied? And how do we ensure that people don't lie? And so there was all these kind of extra traditions and commandments that grew up around explaining that. And what eventually happened was people began to take oaths and they began to make vows. And in particular, the Pharisees were big on this. Um, and they would kind of swear by or take an oath by different things, different objects, right? And this is very common in Jesus's day. Um, you, you could swear by um, heaven, you could swear by earth, you could swear by Jerusalem, you could swear by your own head, and really not have any intention of following through on that. And the seriousness of a lie really depended on the nature of the vow you took. The closer your vow was to the divine name or to the temple, which is the center of God's presence, the more serious the consequences were if you didn't fulfill that vow. And so people kind of created layers and levels to their speech, right? So if I swear by heaven, well, I don't really have to keep that, right? It'd be like kind of saying like, oh, God knows, or by God, or what, you know, we kind of do that. When we want to try to secure somebody's trust, we invoke God's name, right? Or we invoke something spiritual or religious. And as long as they didn't swear by God's name, they could vow without necessarily having to follow through that vow. And so what Jesus is saying here, just cutting through all this, he says, don't take an oath at all. Now, there is all kinds of debate on whether or not, you know, Jesus means here, like the church is divided and we don't have time to get into, can you take, can you serve in the military and take a vow? Can you be a witness in a court of law and take a vow? There's different sides. We don't have time to get into that. But the, the point, the bigger point here, Jesus says, don't take an oath by anything. Don't swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Jesus is essentially saying to them, you are always in the presence of God. You don't need to take an oath. You don't need to swear or take a vow because you, your life is lived always in the presence of God, right? So there should be layers and levels to your conversation. Be truthful, right? Like all of our speech as Christians is to be oath-laden, right? It's to be, it's to, we are to speak as if we are always under oath, always in the presence of God with a kind of transparent honesty and truthfulness and wholeness and integrity to what we say. Not saying one thing here and another thing here, not being one person publicly and a different person 
privately, not being one person in business and one person in church, not thinking one thing on the inside and saying something else externally, not discriminating and treating this person this way and talking to this person this way. There's a, to be a, a truthfulness, a plain speaking, a direct, honest, truthful speaking. And he says that, that becomes then the basis for relationships. Right? Like Truth-telling is so important to the fabric of community, right? Where we lie, we don't tell the truth, we begin to unravel the very, fa- I mean, we see this, right? Like we live in a day where it's conspiracy theories and it's half-truths and it's bearing false witness and it's creating narratives and gaslighting one another, right? Like that's the world in which we live and we see the effects of that and how that impacts people. And so what Jesus is doing here is calling us towards a simplicity of speech. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. The opposite of that um, is not just complexity, although it can be complexity of speech. We can get into complexity with our speech. What he's really attacking here is duplicity of speech, insincerity of speech, right? Like a kind of speech that wants to make promises and commitments as a way of securing someone's trust or manipulating someone towards your will or towards your ideas or towards your agenda, right? Like I have an agenda for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you and speak to you in such a way that I can manipulate you and persuade you towards my view of reality. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Instead of respecting your freedom to choose for yourself and your freedom to listen to God and to make your own choices, I'm seeking to kind of manipulate, control, and dominate you or impress you or persuade you with my um, anxious speech. So let me just give you a simple definition for simplicity of speech, since we're talking about simplicity. Uh, My favorite one comes from a lady named Jan Johnson, who we've quoted throughout this series. She has a book called Abundant Simplicity that's just fantastic. I would highly recommend it. Um, Here's how she defines simplicity of speech. Fewness of words, fullness of words. Fewness of words and fullness of words. She goes on to say this, words that are few in number but deep in fullness, rise up from a heart that has examined and distilled its motives and given up trying to push itself forward or win over others. Do you know people like this? I mean, there are just people like this. They're usually older, um, let's be honest. You know, they're, they're in their like 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and you ever had coffee with somebody who just had this ability to say like very little but, and it almost makes you uncomfortable because we're just not used to people who don't over-talk, um, who aren't trying to persuade, or, but like your grandparents, think of like a really wise grandparent, and they, and they sit down, and they just ask you like one good question, and you're like, <gasps> you know, and you're just like, all of a sudden, you're, you're pierced to the heart, and you're pouring, it's just so much wisdom, and they just say one little thing, and you're just like thinking about that thing. That's, that's what we're talking about here, and that's, that's the essence of simplicity of speech. And Jesus doesn't just teach this. Jesus actually embodies this. Jesus lived this. If you think about Jesus, his whole life was characterized by alternating rhythms of fullness of words and fewness of words, right? What we might call speaking and and silence. We, We see Jesus alternate between these two rhythms throughout the Gospels. If you think about fullness of words and the impact that that had on the people around him, I think of Luke chapter 4, verse 22 Uh, After Jesus uh, preaches his first sermon, he's quoting Isaiah, and he talks about how the kingdom of God is here. He drops the scroll, kind of like an ancient way of dropping the mic, and he steps back. And here's what it says in 422. They were all speaking well of him. They were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. 
I mean, again, like, it's amazing when you hear somebody speak gracious words. Jesus had this way of always saying the right thing, right? Jesus knew how to say the right word to the right person at the right time in the right way for the right purpose. I mean, Jesus is a master at what we might call spiritual discernment or maybe, uh, if you're in the business world, emotional intelligence. He had ability to read situations and understand when to give a rebuke and when to encourage. He was full of wisdom and compassion, and he had this authority about the way that he spoke, and not prideful, but confident, knowing who he was and where he came from. He, he knew when to tell a story or when to just draw near and heal. He knew when to invite someone to follow him and when to tell somebody, hey, you're not ready to follow me yet. He knew when to preach and when not to speak. He asked lots of questions. Somebody tallied this up. Jesus actually asked more questions than he gave commands. He asked 307 questions. He was asked um, 183 questions, and do you know how many of those he actually answered? Less than 10. Of the ones he answered, he answered oftentimes with what? Question. He's so maddening, right? Can you imagine like, like somebody doing that all the time? But but it was so powerful because he lived in a wordy world with lots of wordy religious leaders who were full of all this hypocrisy and duplicity. And Jesus comes with this compassion and this wisdom. And he cuts through all of the complexity and just says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Come here. Repent. Turn away. Follow me. Become my disciple. I mean, that kind of wisdom, it provoked awe and amazement from the crowds. It provoked worship from his disciples. Notice who got the most angry with Jesus. It also provoked anger from who? The religious leaders who were used to speaking in duplicitous, insincere ways. Jesus was the embodiment of Proverbs 25, verse 11. A word spoken at the right time is like gold apples on a silver tray. Jesus had that ability to, in the fullness and the richness of his words, the right thing at the right time with the right person in the right situation. But he also knew not only when to exercise his speech, but he knew when not to speak. He, 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 he really demonstrates for us as well. We don't pay as much attention to this with Jesus, but the fewness of his words is also astounding. If you see how often Jesus practices silence in the face of criticism or in the face of people demanding things from him, anxious people coming to demand things, you'll notice Jesus always like redirecting or just being quiet. It's really fascinating. One of the most uh, well-known examples, Mark 15, he's standing before Pilate while he's on trial, and he's about to be crucified, and he's got the crowds yelling insult and raging at him, and Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, are you not answering anything? Look how many things they are accusing of. He's saying, defend yourself, right? Like, get, get your words ready. You're going to have to defend yourself. But Jesus did not answer anything. And look, Pilate was amazed. This is what we should expect from the Messiah, right? Because this is what the prophets said the Messiah would be like. Matthew chapter 12, quoting Isaiah, he says, Here's my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nation. So what does it look like to be the Messiah full of the spirit? We expect somebody with that kind of power to come, preaching and talking all the time and overwhelming you with their words, writing blogs and treatises and essays and being some kind of philosopher. But notice the next line. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. See, silence was 
an intentional practice with Jesus. He could have responded. He knew what to say. He could have rationalized. He could have defended himself. He could have called down legions of angels to paint it in the skies. And yet Jesus' silence is a way of, I believe, like one, of uh, subverting um, those, the noise of Pilate and the crowds. And then he was also a way of him expressing just a quiet confidence. I don't need to manipulate. I don't need to impress. I have nothing to prove. And so I'm just going to be quiet. Words create worlds. In the fewness and the fullness of Jesus' speech, he was creating, or maybe a better way to put it is recreating, an alternative world, a world of love, a world of grace, a world of justice within a world that was very noisy but full of division and contempt and injustice. But there's a deeper reality that I also just want to point out before we talk about how we cultivate this in our own lives. I want us to see something else that's happening with Jesus. He's not just creating a world with his words. He, he doesn't speak as a politician just manipulating the crowds with propaganda or a life coach who's trying to to sell a wellness scheme or a detached Zen philosopher who's just unpacking the mysteries of life. Jesus' speech is revelatory. Jesus' speech is revealing something to us about who God is. It's showing us the heart of God. Jesus came to show us what God was like. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, right? There was a great song in the 90s to show my age, um, where this lady used to say, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger one of us, right? Like, I'm going to put this in your head. Go, for those of you under 30, go YouTube it. Um, it's a great song. Jesus answers that question. What if God were one of us? Here he comes. He reveals the heart of God to us through his words. And that's the second thing that I want you to see about words. Word just, words don't just create worlds. Words reveal our inner world. Words reveal what's inside of us. What does Jesus' speech show us about the heart of God? It shows us a God who's full of grace and truth. It shows us a God who's full of love. It shows us a God who loves peace, who's contented, who's fully present with people in conversation. Not trying to get a word in, not trying to one-up, not trying to impress or manipulate the truth. I mean, the unpretentiousness of Jesus is really astounding. Why, why was he able to do that? Because he was full of the Father's love. See, the more full you are of God's love, the less you feel the need to impress other people. When we feel the need to impress and manipulate people with our words, it's because we're feeling empty, not feeling full. Right? The more we're talking, that, I'm just going to talk for myself, and this may not be true of you. I might be the only one in the room like this. But the more I am anxious talking, the more I am seeking to persuade, the more I'm criticizing my wife, my children, my staff, whatever, uh, myself, the more empty I tend to feel inside. And that emptiness can create a certain inner anxiety that leads me to want to be anxious with my words. So when I'm speaking, it's telling me something about what's going on inside of me. Or when I'm not speaking, it can also tell me something that's going on inside of me. Jan Johnson says it like this, simplicity of speech flows from a heart that is bonded with the heart of Jesus, compassionate and truthful, loving and good. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, a good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of, of the heart. 
if you were just to do an inventory and just think about the words that you've spoken, don't even go back like a year. Just go back to like days. The words that you've spoken to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, what do those words reveal about what you really value? Or words that you didn't speak that you should have spoken, that you should have spoken up on behalf of somebody. What does that reveal about what you value, about your beliefs, your priorities, your relationships? What might that tell you about what's happening inside of you? Think about your life like an iceberg, right? Like 90% of what's going on is going on deep down in the dark places that we either don't want to see or can't see. And so our words are one of the ways that we begin to see things surfacing. Like every once in a while, like a big whale just surfaced with a big spout of water in our lives. And we say something. And our tendency in that moment is to say what? Oh, that's not really me, right? You say an angry word to somebody. You hurt somebody. You shame somebody. You're afraid, right? You have all this anxiety. You're like, oh, that's not me. That's not the real me. But what if it is? Like who else is down there except you? Our our, our speech reveals fear, it can reveal anxiety, it can reveal insecurity, it can reveal contempt, it can reveal lust or desires that we have to consume other people, it can reveal guilt or shame or pride, and this is what leads to all of these ways that we're not simple with our speech, right? I like, I just give you examples, like what, is it, what does it mean, what does it look like when you're not walking in simplicity of speech? It looks like exaggerating with your words, right? That was the best ever, okay, no it wasn't, okay, but you, like you're doing that thing, right? You're exaggerating. Uh, or that, you're the worst, okay, are they really the worst? Like, okay, that's exaggeration, spinning, right, image management, self-justification or defensiveness, control and manipulation, gossip, slander, passive-aggressive behavior, flattery, gaslighting, uh, trying to impress people with our knowledge, using really like nuance or abstract or technical jargon, bragging. How about just chattiness, right? Like small talk. Like some of us are really bad when we get nervous. We get in a situation where we feel insecure. We just start talking and we don't shut up. And like you ever had coffee with somebody and literally it was like an hour and 29 minutes of them talking and one minute for you. You're just like, that was exhausting. Like if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you might be the one doing that to other people. But like that, that can be a form of sin, right? Over-talking, manipulating, self-preoccupied, right? Like that, those are all different ways. And, it, and, and my point is just, we need to pay attention to what's happening internally. Why is that? Why do I feel the need to talk this way? Why do I feel the need to use these words? What is this person triggering in me that makes me feel like I need to get defensive and say these kinds of things? So that's kind of what simplicity of speech is. We see that words create worlds, worlds reveal our inner words, simplicity of speech is about our hearts as much as it is about what we say. So with all of that in mind, I want to just spend the rest of our time giving us some things to think about, two things to think about in terms of how we actually cultivate simplicity of speech. How do we, as disciples of Jesus, learn to speak more plainly, more honestly, more directly with a simplicity of speech? Now, let me just say at the start, this is not something that you can do with moral willpower, right? If you've ever tried to reform your speaking, you know how hard it is, okay? So I'm going to talk for just a second. I am really, this is a big struggle for me, okay? I, I tend to be defensive. Um, I tend to want to impress people with my speech. So I will use words. I will, I will quote, uh, I quote 50 people. I want you to know how smart I am sometimes. 
right? Like I, or I'll either do that or I'll stonewall, right? Like in my family, when, when things get anxious and people get angry, everybody runs for their bedrooms and it's like the 1980s Cold War with Russia. I mean, it is like just iciness, right? And so this is something I have struggled with in my own life and continue to struggle with my words. I can use angry words, hurtful words to my kids, to my wife. Like this is not something that I have mastered by any means. And this is not something that we could just change with self-discipline, right? But that doesn't mean we can't grow. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be putting a lot of effort uh, in partnership with the Holy Spirit to uh, cultivating simplicity of speech, right? So much of our speaking, uh, Dallas Willard says this in, in a lot of his spiritual formation writing, it's, it's automatic patterns that we've learned, right? We learn it in our families of origin. We learn it in our communities, right? Like you ever seen the Christmas story, you watch the Christmas story every year, and Ralphie says that cuss word, and everybody's like, oh, where did it come from? And he's like, it came from my dad. You know, like, it, it comes from our communities. We're conditioned. Literally, like, our brains, neurobiology tells us our brains are shaped by decades of social condition, di- conditioning, neural pathways in our brain that lead to automatic ways of speaking that are deeply ingrained. So this is not going to happen magically. It's not going to happen easily, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. James chapter 3, verse 2, there is an invitation for us to grow up into maturity in our speaking. One of, the, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to us, Paul says, is that we can partner with the Holy Spirit in growing in how we speak, right? Grace is not opposed to, earn, it's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, Dallas Willard says. We need to give effort. That's why the Bible will say, put off this, Put on this. Take off these clothes over here. Put on the clothes of the new self, right? Put this to death. Stop doing this and do this, but always in the power of the Holy Spirit, not anything that we can do just through sheer sheer willpower. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. My speech and my proclamation, when he came to preach the gospel in Corinth, big city, he says, "I I could be smart and intelligent. I could impress you with all of my rabbi training, but he says, no, I didn't come with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. Why? So that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. When we speak from the flesh, we make people dependent on our wisdom, not God's. So they don't want to do that. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when we, when we put our trust in Jesus, we become a disciple of Jesus. Start being with Jesus, trying to become like Jesus, doing what he did. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a speech coach, right? Speech therapy. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us and reteaches us how to unlearn unhelpful and harmful ways and unnecessary ways of speaking, and he literally mentors us and teaches us the mind of God, the heart of God. So we need the Spirit to align our hearts with the heart of God. And then out of that heart that's being transformed, we begin to speak differently. Let me give you just two practices, or two, two, two um, just, I guess, imitations here. One should be obvious, and maybe one will be less obvious. The first one, speak less. That's it. Speak less. What would it look like for you just to not talk as much this week? Now, if you're an introvert, or you're a person who maybe has been abused, maybe you're a person who's been dominated by other people, you might actually need to do the opposite. So you might need to press into the second half of this where you need to learn to use your voice. But for a lot of us, the first step is just to be like Jesus and speak less. Ecclesiastes 3 and 5, there's an occasion for everything, 
this is going to blow some of your minds. There's a time to be silent. Anytime we practice silence at SOMA, uh, in services or in missional community, people think it's so weird. They're just like, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah, because we haven't learned that there's a time to be silent. It's awkward because we're a wordy, noisy society. The Bible says there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. Don't be hasty to speak. Don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven. He's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Let's say that together. Let your words be few. For many dreams bring futility. So do many words. The proverb says, where words are many, sin is not absent. Therefore, fear God. And I think the implication is, be quiet. Now, there's a pressure on us, right, in our modern world to speak a lot. To speak up, to speak out. If you care about justice, you're encouraged and invited to speak out. If you're raising children, you have to speak lots of words. If you're involved in the digital capitalism machinery that is our, like, economy and political world, some of you are marketing and advertising or you're writers, and you have to speak. Like, I get that there is a lot of pressure, and the pace and the volume of words can feel overwhelming, right? But here's the paradox of modern urban life. There's lots of pressure to speak lots of words, but there's less and less time and space to cultivate the kind of deep inner life out of which compassionate, wise, loving, and Jesus-like words arise. So this is the paradox. More words, less reflection, equals more pain. We're, we're, we're invited, we're tempted, we're pushed to speak more with less space to think about what we're actually saying and why we're saying it. And then we wonder why we're so divided and why we're so hurt by each other's words. Historically, the church has made a big deal about silence. It's weird to us because we're Americans, right? And we live in the modern world, which is all about noise. It's all about words. But that's not always been the case. The contemplative wing of the church, right, that, that really I would say is like the ground wire for all of our activism in the world. The contemplative wing says, hey, slow down. Like we're all for activism. We're all for serving and being involved in the city. The contemplative tradition, like the monks for thousands of years, have built monasteries because they see the temptation of noisiness, and they say, we've got to be careful that we don't go too far. We've got to be careful to discipline our words. So they developed a rule of life, Benedict's rule of life, which is the most famous rule of life, been around for thousands of years, has guided Christians in how to think about living in healthy ways. You know what the first rule of St. Benedict's rule of life is? Listen. Or it could be translated, hear. In other words, stop talking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the most, the, 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 the death of the spiritual life starts when we talk, when we don't stop talking. Why was that so important to the monks? Well, I, let me just give you, I'll just list these. Why, why is silence, why was silence so important for thousands of years prior to the dawn of the Western world? Um, Henry Nouwen says this in his book, Way of the Heart. Less talking meant less sin. It's pretty obvious. The less you talk, the less opportunity you have to sin. Okay? When was the last time you left a, a conversation that was really wordy and you were just like over talking and you went home and you're like, man, I should have talked more. <laughs> like, no, I probably should have talked less. Some of our greatest regrets come from talking too much. Less talk, less sin. 
silence, they would say, guards the inner fire, right? They'd use the analogy of a shower, right? You need to close the shower door to keep the steam inside, right? Like when we're in silence, we're not alone. We're being silent with God. We're attending to the Holy Spirit. We're listening to God speak to us. But when they talk, they, they would say it's like opening the door to the bath, and then all the steam goes out, right? It dissipates the ability to think creatively, to think deeply, and then to operate out of that kind of center of life with God. So silence guards that inner fire, right? There was something called the discipline of secrecy, right? Which doesn't mean you're being duplicitous and hiding. The discipline of secrecy just means not everything that happens to you has to be broadcasted out to the world. I know that's hard for us to believe. But there are some things, Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to God. There are some things that are meant not to be shared. We don't need to know everything about you. I'm sure you don't want to know everything about me. Silence is a form of hospitality, right? When we're quiet, it gives others the chance to speak. Think about that. The noisier you are, the less your children, like if you're a parent and you're giving speeches to your kids all the time, when are they going to learn to talk? When you talk over your wife, you don't give them space to speak. When you talk over the vulnerable, when you talk at the homeless, the poor, the marginalized, they don't have a chance to speak. We need to think about that. The more we talk, the less others can speak. And then finally, silence strengthens our speaking, right? The point of silence is not to be silent. You can be silent and be a jerk, right? You can be silent and not be about love. Like, that's me. That's me. Like, I, if, if I go quiet, you know that I'm probably judging you in my mind right now. <laughs> I stonewall. I, I get really quiet when I get mad. The goal of silence, though, is not to just be quiet. The goal of silence is to renew our speaking. It's the, so that the words that we say actually are meaningful and impactful. It's that they're the words that you need to hear at the right time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. So that's half of it. We, we've got to learn to speak less. And then we need to let the Spirit help us engage in a process of speech therapy. I, lo- I just love that language, speech therapy. Right? We need to grow up with our speech. We need to allow the Spirit of God to do what's impossible. Right? With man, these things are impossible, Jesus. But with God, all things are possible. Nobody, James says, can bridle the tongue except God. God is the one who who tames our tongue. God is the one who redirects our ability to speak. And the Bible is full of all kinds of wisdom that could guide our speaking. Let me just give you a couple verses and then we'll close. Let me just give you a couple of things the Bible says about speaking. First, we should speak truth, not lies. Again, very obvious, but like how hard is that for us to do? Speak the truth instead of lying. That's Jesus' words. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. When you say something, do what you said you're going to do. Don't be afraid to tell somebody no. So this means like no trickery, no manipulation, no half-truths, no narrative building without checking with the other person to make sure that my assumptions are right. No gossiping, even if it's in the form of a prayer request, you know. Like how we do in church, like I'm, gonna, I'm not going to gossip, I'm going to pray for you. Um, no telling somebody you're going to pray for them when you're actually not, that's not allowed. No slandering, no posturing, no trying to be super Christian around each other and using all kinds of weird religious language that makes people feel uncomfortable, even though you're not doing any of it. Like all that stuff, right? All the stuff we do. Learning to say no instead of 
committing and overcommitting ourselves. One of the easiest things I think we can apply to this yes, 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 and no, no is like stop telling people you're available for something when you're not or you don't want to go. Just say, I don't want to do it or I can't do it. It's not unloving to tell people no. David Brooks, the New York Times off, uh, editor, uh, said we live in the golden age of bailing out. When I tell you I'm going to be somewhere in the last second, I text you, and I, and I say, oh, I can't come, I'm tired, or I got this thing. No, you're, not, you're, not, you're just bailing. You just don't want to go. Like, that's all part of what Jesus is saying with your yes be yes and your no be no. Our kids have learned uh, when we tell them, when they ask us a question 30 times, and we tell them maybe or we'll think about it, they just like, they go, okay, you mean no. Just go ahead and like the older ones have started telling the younger ones, like, they mean no. It's like we just need to, like, as parents, be like, no. I don't care if I have to say it 50 times. No, 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 no. Not maybe. No. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Ask. Asking instead of condemning. Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks the door will be open. That passage is typically quoted is talking about prayer, but it's actually in the context of personal relationships. If you want something, ask somebody for it. Very simple, very direct, very precise. You don't need a stump speech. You don't need to write a blog post. Just say, hey, I would like for you to do this. Ask, and it might be given to you. If it's not, continue seeking, continue knocking, but don't, Jesus says in Matthew 7, start condemning people. That doesn't mean we can't judge between what's right and what's wrong. The idea here is don't condemn. I love Dallas Willard's way of talking about this. He calls it condemnation engineering. Don't shame people. Don't bully people. Don't manipulate people. Don't show contempt for people because they're not doing what you want. Just ask and then honor their freedom to choose. Like we need to learn to speak this way to each other. Uh, John Gottman one of the foremost uh, researchers on marriage. Uh, he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four killers of marriages. Here's what he says in terms of how we speak to each other if you're married, but this is good for anybody. Criticism, this is all part of condemnation engineering, I think. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. The number one predictor, and he studied thousands of marriages, the number one predictor of marriages that end in divorce is when somebody begins to show contempt for their partner in the way that they speak to them. Sarcasm, mockery, meanness, rudeness. And think about how we talk to our kids. It's so easy to condemn when we don't get our way. Jesus says, just ask. Honor people's dignity. Confessing instead of blaming is also in this passage. Don't just blame other people for why you blew off the handle. Jesus says, look at the log in your own eye first. We need to practice confessing, which is the word confession just means to agree with God that I have contribution to make here. There's a great book called Difficult Conversations if you want more practical on this. We've been working on this as a staff because I think we all recognize that we, we can grow in this area. Uh, we're all really nice to each other but have a hard time having hard conversations. And in that book, he talks about shifting from uh, the blame game to the contribution system and recognizing that all of us make a contribution when there's conflict with other people, even if it's only 10%. Contribution is about understanding and looking forward and about learning, a learning conversation. Blaming is about judging and condemning and looking backwards. So we learn to confess 
instead of blame. We build up instead of tear down Ephesians 4. No foul language is to come from your mouth. And that's just not curse words. That's like attacking somebody. But only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace. Another translation says imparts grace to its hearers. Is my speech imparting grace or is it trying to impose an agenda? Right? Nothing that I say should come out of my mouth except what's helpful to build somebody up. Blessing instead of cursing. And then finally, drawing out instead of drowning out. James 1, my dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Drawing others out when I show up in a conversation. How can I be attentive to you and not think about what I have to say? Like, I don't know if you ever do that thing when you're in a conversation with somebody where you're thinking about what you want to say next and you're not really paying attention to them. You're not being fully present to them because you have an agenda. You have somewhere else you think you need to be or you're talking to somebody in the lobby, but your eyes are wandering somewhere else and you're not fully present with them in that moment. How can I show up in a conversation and say, man, this person's heart, the proverb says, are deep waters. How can I just be a ladle that scoops into those deep waters and seeks to draw out what God might be doing and saying in this person's life? Okay, so this week, what we want to practice, we want to practice this this week. There's lots we could say here, but we want to practice this week. We have a, a, pra- a practice guide that's available in our newsletter. And all we want to do this week is simply invite you to experiment with silence, okay? Experiment with silence. It's in our news weekly. It's on our website, somemidtown.com, uh, in the spiritual formation site, uh, piece of the website. We want to just invite you to practice small silences throughout your day this week, okay? Take a moment to pause and to be silent. And you might have to get up in the morning and be quiet for a minute. And you might have to actually think about your day. So I do this every morning, get up in the morning. I practice silence. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, sinner. Just breath prayer. I'm just trying to be, and then I'm quiet. I listen. And I look at my day. Who am I meeting with this week? Who might I be triggered by? Who am I meeting with today? Who might I be triggered to anger with or defensiveness with? And how can I just be quiet as I enter into conversation with that person? How can I just listen, right? How can I give a short, simple response, a yes or a no instead of a yes but or a yes and, right? How can I just listen? How can I not be the first one to speak? How can I not interrupt? I have a habit of interrupting people. How can I not interrupt them when they're speaking to me? How can I not interject my opinion unless it's asked for? How can I not get the last word in this conversation so they know and they're clear about where I stand, right? How can I ask more questions? You might even, if you're a person that struggles, you might, not, you might even need to write down, teach my kids active listening skills. You might need to write down three or four questions that you're going to show up in the conversation with and actually like put them in front of you and say, hey, I've been working on the discipline of not talking so much and being quiet. Here's some questions I would love to ask to start our conversation. I mean, it might be that awkward, but like it's better than you talking the whole time, right? So we want to invite you to practice silence. And as you're doing that, we also want to invite you just to pay attention to what God is saying internally. What are you feeling when you're quiet? When you're not able to respond, when somebody's criticizing you, are you feeling anxious and why? Are you feeling afraid? Are you feeling anger or contempt or sadness? Why is that? And what might God be saying to you in your sadness? What do we need to know from God in these moments so that we don't overtalk or we don't talk in hurtful ways? Do we need to hear the words of God to Jesus because we are in Jesus you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You don't need to respond. You don't need to be vindicated. You don't need to be defended. I am here with you, and I will do all the defending. Do we, what do we need to hear from God in order to 
deal with our hearts so that we begin to speak in more life-giving ways. Okay, let me pray for us. Let's just take a moment to put our stuff away. We're going to take communion here together. And I just want to invite you into a moment of silence here in quiet as our ushers prepare to come and bring uh, communion down. I want to pray over us, but I just want you to ask God what he might be inviting you into this week. What needs to be confessed? What needs to be turned away from? What needs to be acknowledged? Maybe you think about some conversations that you've had this week, some apologies that need to be made. And I just want you to imagine what it might look like if Jesus did a work in your life, a work in your heart, as you're trusting him and you're learning to cling to him, to be your yes, to be your no, what it needs to be. I want you to imagine being able to offer words of reconciliation to somebody that you're at odds with or somebody that hates your guts. I want you to imagine being able to offer a blessing to your children instead of cursing them this week. I want you to imagine being able to offer truthful words instead of people-pleasing this week. I want you to imagine being able to offer the word of the gospel to a person who needs hope in their life, to offer a word of prayer to somebody who's struggling. I want you just to imagine that and let that just fill your imagination. What would it look like for the life of Jesus to be manifest in your heart and in your speech this week, to give you a vision to move towards? And let's just ask God to make that true in our lives as we go to communion. So let me pray for us. We'll take a moment of silence. I'll invite our band up here, and we'll sing this last song together. But hang on to your communion elements. I'll lead us through here in just a moment. But let's just respond as God leads, and let's imagine a different way of being this week. Father, we just pray that you would bring these words home to our hearts this week, that you would remind us that you are in the heavens, that you are present everywhere in our lives and inside of us as disciples of Jesus. We have no one to impress, nothing to prove. So let our words be few. Let our words be full of life, full of the richness and the abundance of the kingdom of God. But let them also be few. Let us enter into intentional spaces of silence to learn what it means to listen to you and to listen to others so that we might speak gracious words that come from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.